everybody, welcome to the podcast. My son, Seth Erie, now home for the summer, has prepared a musical number today, I kid you not, for um, our introduction. And so, Seth, come on it, come on over. Um, he is holding a guitar backwards, so he is playing the neck of it and holding kind of, what is it, the body. And uh, that gives it just a unique sound. So, Seth, <laughs> take it away, buddy. What do you got for us today? It's on for it's on for never it never gives up. Never gives up, right? The, the worship song. My phone? Yeah. Why do Why do we need my phone right now? It's on. Okay, no, but you did a great job just singing it. Yeah. All right, you go ahead. Okay. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. No, no, stand stand right here so we can hear you. All right, All right ready? Right here. All right. All right, and and um, if you're on YouTube, you're getting this. Okay, go ahead. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, let's sing it, bro. Oh, yep, it goes. Nice. It never gives up. Yep. Never gives up. You sound uh, nice. Nice. I see you. Do have a talk? Yeah, you were closing your eyes while you were singing. No, no. I close my eyes. I I can pay for a pay for always a pay Oh, for all the people. You have a talk, okay? Okay, I'll talk, and then you're gonna play the guitar. No. Oh, okay. Are you all done? That was amazing, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, God. Figures, oh, now figures, he's praying. Figures, Close his eyes. He's praying. Figures, figures, also, podcast. Go to Fox, com. Fox through Fox Breakfast. Fox through the Fox Breakfast. Fox Breakfast. Nice. So, Mike, talking about Portland on a wizard. Nice. Wow. Okay, so let me get the... So, none of that... Seth just brought his guitar up and said, Dad, sing Voxology Podcast. And I'm like, well, dude, of course. But I had no idea that was going to be a worship song <laughs> and uh, some prayer just to yeah. kick us off, ladies and gentlemen. Let's that is pretty right. amazing. Hello, Timothy. How are you? Hello, Mike. I'm well. How are you? So what, do you, what have you been demoing all week? I've been oh, getting uh, pictures of, is this a friend's house? Is this your house? What, well, what are my you demoing? House. We just, I just gutted my entire bathroom. Everything. That's, that's good. Known. Yeah, although I've never done this before, so we'll see how it goes. I can't afford to pay someone else to do it, so I'm doing it myself. Yeehaw. Wow. What could possibly go wrong? Right. Um, is there a reason why it's being gutted? The previous owner was in a wheelchair, so they redid the bathroom to be like wheelchair accessible and friendly for her yeah. to wheel into the shower. So they took out the tub. So we have no bathtub or anything like that with children, which is rough. Yeah. I'm also a avid bath taker. It's a Zen place. Yeah. That's weird. Um, I love it. Yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. That's a little odd. I, um, <laughs> um, you and Roy Kent, did you that's ever right. watch Ted Lasso? I've watched, we just started the newest season, but okay. we watched the other okay. ones in real time. Okay, okay. 
we the finale just came out, so I won't say anything um, except do it's it. it's so sad what? that um, yep Ted and Roy get married. So, oh. but they timed it well. Um, so all that is to say, enjoy. I won't say anything. I was going to have a little Ted Lasso convo, but um, if you've not if you're not up to speed, then forget it. I just think. Um, in terms of a, vi- um, a vision for the world where kindness, um, even in the midst of hardship, they've done a great job of not just doing cliche sort of kindness, but kindness in the midst of disappointment and hurt yeah. and pain and unforgiveness. It works really well and it shouldn't. Yes. Like, but it does for some reason. They have but just really nailed that avenue. They really have. And, and just the pictures of masculinity that... And mental um, health. Yeah, mental health. So anyway, I'm glad you're glad you're watching. Hope you enjoy. We'll talk Love after it. the finale. One thing we haven't um, talked about at all was Tim Keller's death, and um, and so if you don't know, Tim Keller was a very prominent voice in the reformed movement. Um, he also was, I think, one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition. Initially, mm-hmm. yeah, he was a very prominent pastor and church planner in New York City. Written just tons of books. And um, I, I read I read a number of his books years ago um, and found them to be helpful. And, and <clears throat> even in the midst of, you know, the, the turmoil on uh, Twitter these days, I've always been impressed with how he worked to conduct himself in public life. Assume, 100%. Yep. To assume the best about people, to not demonize people, to not <clears throat> use straw men against other people and use their yeah. weakest arguments. But um, so I, I, I was kind of, you know, and then the tributes <clears throat> just poured out from every corner of the interwebs, which is re- really cool because he transcended his theological category. Yeah, especially in a time period, like you said, where we're just watching fallen leader after fallen leader after fallen leader or attacking all the leaders yes i don't i don't agree with a lot of keller's theology but i still mourn and grieve kind of what you just said and the kindness and the wisdom and intentionality that he had with people yes and he's affected a lot of people's lives who are very close to me yes yeah even yeah and and it's so funny, man. I, I I remember hearing or thinking about this when Rachel Held Evans died years ago. But just the need, and, and and you weren't doing this, but I saw it all over Twitter, and you, and your comment brought it again to my mind. Just the need to make sure everyone knows I didn't agree with everything, right? And then, but I'll really miss this person. Like even right. even when I heard that, I I was like, oh boy, here it comes. I didn't agree with everything, but. Well, everything's so combative right now, so it's it is rare to see somebody pass that's that high profile and yeah. have largely positive right responses. But, but what but what is it in American Christianity that we even even when somebody I'll tell dies you exactly what it is? <laughs> we have to let people know we didn't agree with everything. Yeah, it's um it's Bud Light, it's Target, it's Chick Fil A. So all three of those are like being heavily protested by Christians and large vocal Christian leaders for their support of LGBTQ stuff. And so now it feels like you have to you have to like preface everything with like I'm not one of those Christians. I'm not mm. a I'm not a, a 
ostracizing, excluding, segregating, condemning Christian. I'm a whatever Christian. So it's yeah, Christianity's in a weird spot. I was trying to find stuff to talk about today, and but it was all like that because that's the that's the headline <laughs> across the board is like just the negativity. But I did find a cool article, and it's not Ooh. it's not based in the church, but oh yeah, uh, yeah. it's based in. Um, so I was thinking about that and how. You're seeing so many people like Bridget Eileen Rivera. Is that her name? We've had her yep. on twice. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, she tweeted yesterday about like the suicide rates with uh, gay Christians. It's very high. Mm. Just dealing with the shame and the condemnation and whatnot. And mm. Mm. as we talk and think more and more about advocating for humanity and, um, you know, seeking the best for humans and obviously pushing people towards taking their lives would be very much the opposite of that. Yeah. But this one, this is an article that I came across um, about this doctor. So there's this woman that was catatonic for 20 years. And uh, her, and they thought it was that she had schizophrenia. And then they, after 20 years, the doctor, he was brand new out of med school when he treated her 20 years ago. Mm. And they were just like, they couldn't figure it out. And she was having these just like gnarly, like arms reaching out of the ceiling to get her and this like nurse oh, with man. black eyes and crooked teeth and all this, like she was living in this, this space for 20 years. And then he, 20 years later, someone figured out that it may be like, let's, we need to check her autoimmune system. And they found out that she has lupus and the lupus was what was actually causing all this oh, stuff it Lord. wasn't schizophrenia so now she's they've like they've figured it out and they've given her these drugs to fight the lupus and help her out mm -hmm. and now she's come out of that catatonic state after 20 years but i thought it was so it, the guy that did it the doctor he was i don't know if you remember that movie awakenings with um robin williams and robert de niro is based on a true story about the doctor who figured out how to, how to bring people out of um catatonic states and mm -hmm. so that was all based on a true story and that doctor was that this doctor's kind of like hero and they actually met met each other and mentored a little bit he got mentored by the older guy that robin williams played and it was just this idea of like they never gave up on uh restoring someone's humanity after 20 years and figured it out and now they're helping a bunch of other people who have similar they're like hey put the word out we figured something out anyone else that's in a catatonic state state like this that may be diagnosed with schizophrenia mm. Um, we might be able to help them now. Like we may have cracked wow. the code. So it's like this wow. intentional spirit after 20 years to save somebody, to pull someone out and to, you know, just one person mm -hmm. and to try to restore their humanity and give them a chance at life. I thought was really mm -hmm. encouraging. It's so in the midst like... of all this, all this suppression, it was yeah. cool to see someone fighting. And then now they've, they've helped a couple other people too, that were in similar, like these other nurses are like, Oh, I've got somebody like that. And so they go over there and check that person out. And then they find that they also have lupus. They helped a young girl who was mm. a twin that was also in that state. It's almost like his love never fails. It never gives up. It never That's runs right. out on the us. doctors. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And what a beautiful, what a beautiful picture of kind of the biblical image of salvation, right? I mean, that's, it's the ongoing pursuit. It's the, um, awakening almost, mm -hmm. um, out of, you know, a previous way of seeing uh, 
or uh, a wrong diagnosis into like something much more full and human and free. And well, it's kind of on both sides of the fence, right? The person who is sick, but also the doctor mm-hmm. and, and just the spirit of seeking the spirit of wanting so badly to restore this person to their rightful place. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I think it's pretty amazing to see stories like that every now and then of someone that just absolutely 100% advocates for human life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I smell what you're cooking, bro. <laughs> I, um, I, I find those sorts of uh, stories really compelling too. Um, the, the, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so much there because the, the do no harm ethic, uh, that is the ground of, you know, so much of our morality, and, 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 and harm now is, is up for such debate over what's harmful. Right. You know, disagreeing is, can be harmful or um, words can be harmful. And, and um, so what does that look like to advocate for the flourishing of people when that flourishing is defined super narrowly? Um, right, because that's the love your neighbor right now is, no, you love them in your hate or in your whatever because you're helping them out of their sin. Well, the, the love of your neighbor can be bounded. So, yep, you're out. And so I have to tell you, you're out. Love of your neighbor it's can my be duty. fuzzy. Fuzzy. It just means, okay, you, you're an individual and have all the rights to do you do you as long as you right. don't hurt anybody else. Neither of those is what the Bible means by love your neighbor. Right. And so it's a tough, man, it's a tough... Tough image, but what a beautiful picture to kind of hold on to of what that looks like. Um, love it, dude. Look at you go. It's not just doom scrolling. Um, Tim, th- there, there are mornings when our mutual friend and I will be <laughs> awakened um, by, and we'll know that Tim is having a rough day by, <laughs> by things that just show up via the group text line. And, um, and so happening. our... Yeah, so our job is just to sit and hold Tim's emotions and rage. Good luck. And, uh, and maybe he'll... It's a good thing you, know, you have big it. hands. <laughs> um, I have, speaking of um, big hands, I want to thank some very generous hands that I've, I've been overdue. And, and I, we're, not, we're not huge fans of talking about money, and um and support and all of those sorts of things and so you know outside of the thank you thank you thank you that you get at the end of every every episode um i do you're welcome you're welcome you're welcome but i get behind on just thanking people for joining us and and the reason all of that matters is of course that that this whole enterprise costs money and we love that um it's free and available to all. And so we have a, a kind of an ardent group, a very kind and generous group. And uh, over the last probably three months, uh, a number of people have joined it and um, financially support us. So I just wanted to say thank you. So I want to say thank you to Kate and Stephen and Sarah and Chuck H. Uh, um, and if, if Chuck H's brother Chuck D is out there, then that would be <laughs> awesome too. I want to th- say thanks to Emma and Gabe and Mark and Eric. And, and, and this is great. So you can put, like when you sign up on Patreon, you can put whatever name you want. So this person put existential dread. 
but they spell dread with two D's like Judge Dread. So yeah. this is working on multiple levels. So well done. And thank you, Existential Dread That's with right. two D's for your support. Jeremy, Doug, Silent Enoch. How about that one? <laughs> Julia, Jana, Chris, and John. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for your kindness in joining us in this whole crazy enterprise. And um, anyway, I just uh, wanted to always take a moment to appreciate people for their generosity. Um, and it's, man, it's a gift and it's something we never take for granted. I think Existential Dread was the name of my autobiography. Oh, I was going to say, that's your band name, bro. <laughs> that's your band name. And speaking of bands, bro. Bro, there's bands. Bro, you got, you got mu new music out. Like let's oh, yeah. talk. Oh yeah, there's oh, yeah. there's a man full of self promotion. Tim Stafford, you have the we music about up. It in therapy. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, you were talking about it in therapy. <laughs> just how bad I am at that kind of stuff on oh. a large scale, not just with art and music stuff, but just in general. I'm not a I'm not a very good self advocate. Well, Tim, then let me advocate for you. If you look up Timothy John Stafford on Spotify. There is a new album That's of right. music available to you. And I got to say the the picture Tim at first I didn't I didn't know it was you. <laughs> I I I was like is that is that a guy from JC Penney? Is that like was who, it from my Sears days? <laughs> who is that? And then and then I saw and and it's kind of like and 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 I'm saying this like as a total compliment. But it's kind of like one of those school pictures, you know, you always took a school picture when you were looking off to the side somewhere. Yeah. And you're very, very handsome. And I actually think you're better looking in real life. But in that picture, I mean, I just went, wow. That's. Well, I had one that when I was in LA, there, there's this couple and he did film work and she did photography and they were great, wonderful people. And they came to one of my shows and they're just like, we really like your music. We'd, I'd love to do a photo shoot for free. And I was like, you're speaking my love language. Yeah, free. And so she did the photo shoot, but then I've shoot. been sitting on those photos for uh, a very long time because they're the only professional ones that I have. Oh, yeah. Well, I I think they're wonderful. And if you don't, if you want to see what that looks like, then you got to go to Spotify. Yeah, or um, Apple, all the streamers. All the streams. Don't cross them. Don't cross them. Back, ladies and gentlemen, today to revelation so and if you're thinking man we're going really slow through this that was a good segue oh, by the way what that was a good segue <laughs> well speaking <true>. of <laughs> speaking of yes we're paid highly speaking paid of existential dread back to revelation now if you're thinking gee we did all of that background um and then we got through one chapter Yep, and here comes several more episodes of background before we get to chapter two. <laughs> and the reason um, we're doing the background, not surprisingly, is that our goal um, is uh, to, to understand Revelation perhaps the way that the original audience would have, because it would have it was meant to be intelligible. It was meant to be comforting. It was meant to be confrontive in some ways. And um, it was not at all some sort of like enigma machine um, that you had to have a secret code to figure out. <laughs> the enigma machine. And so, yeah, good pull. Uh, World War II pull right there. 
so there are two streams and I and I and I and it's three really because we count the kind of gospel tradition around Jesus as one of the streams. But um, the two other streams that that Revelation is dialoguing with are the Old Testament, and we saw that a bunch in chapter one. But also the uh, Roman propaganda of uh, the uh, the empire, and not only the empire but the emperor. And to get a feel for these letters that are vastly over spiritualized when they get to us and we read them as you know we. I mean, there are some interpreters that see these as like different eras of church history, which is so not what they are. Um, but others see them as sort of these postcards, like little little pithy postcards. Hey, guys, don't lose your first love. Hey, guys, don't be lukewarm. Hey, guys, I, I stand at the door and knock. And, um, and that's not what they are. These are actually really, really instructive letters about all of the culture war things we're talking about. Um, you know, whether it's gender, whether it's race or um, uh, wealth inequity, all of these huge conversations about wokeness in the church. And I mean, all of these uh, discernment areas, the church is kind of flying by the seat of its pants. But you realize this this kind of discernment, um, whether we're fuzzy or whether we're bounded or whether we're centered set, and this is all in reference to episodes we did you know, last year or whatever ago. Um, all of that really plays out in how Revelation was to be understood. And, and the, the point it would have in the, um, in the churches in which it was read. For some of the churches, they were beginning to be persecuted. And the persecution wasn't um, uh, b- being physically harmed. Although that was starting right at the end of the first century. It was about putting... F- uh, rainbow flags on their beer cans. Well, it was about um, not accommodating to the culture. And and that's what the culture war thing is really about. So so there are some who will look at a Bud Light and say, man, it, th- where does this stop? Right? Um, where does this stop? Um, if, if you literally cannot use male and female language anymore, I mean, like... <laughs> What 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 is what le- what is left, and 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 or, or they'll look at the emphasis on race and justice and go you know not everything exists through through color lenses, um, and power dynamics and 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 so I want to be charitable as po- as much as possible in the in spirit of Tim Keller, saying hey there's a concern that a lot of the ideology around us, um, which they would say isn't isn't Christian is filtering into the church and that people like us are uncritically allowing it into the church. Um, and, uh, and, and so revelation the the call to the churches is a call to discernment because mm-hmm. there are some churches who are too comfortable. They're too comfortable with empire. They're too comfortable with sexual immorality in their midst. They're too comfortable with false teaching. Then there are other churches that aren't comfortable at all. Uh, um, um, and and they need to be comforted with an image of Jesus walking among them and blessing them and seeing their trials and tribulations. And so, I mean, obviously the American church, if, if we had to peg the American church, it wouldn't be on the um, that too persecuted. It would probably be on the too you know, comfortable side. Yeah. But the, the, the seven letters represent a, a picture of what 
parts of empire could be held um, and what parts of empire had to be rejected. And so I think there's a, there's a great deal here for us. But to really appreciate it, we have to do background. So this episode, <laughs> that was all a justification of why we're doing background. That was laying the groundwork for the groundwork. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, infinite, infinite levels of groundwork. So, so what I want to do is in this episode, I want to talk about um, the uh, imperial uh, cult. And cult here doesn't mean like weird, you know, Branch Davidian religion. Cult means apparatus of worship. So the Hebrews had a cultic complex in this sense. Um, and so, so the imperial cult, uh, there was a story that Rome told about itself that the Christian story called into question. And where this truck is going is that there's a, a story America tells about itself that the Christian story calls it also into question. Um, but like then, so too now, often we get the Roman Empire story and the Christian story confused back then and now we get the American story and the Christian story confused. And so we want to tell, we want to talk about the way that Rome told its story, the way it talked about itself. And, and then to be able to see within that why capitulation to the culture was so dadgum easy and tempting. Um, and, and, and uh, not surprisingly, that those same sorts of temptations sit exactly in front of us. Right. Because if, you, if you're going to be a prophetic community, if you're going to be a counterculture community, there has to be parts of culture you call into question as well as parts of culture that you accept. And where you draw those lines, of course, is what our culture warring is all about. So um, I'm going to break this into three sections. And these sections I'm getting from David De Silva in a oh, book called... Are they going to be like alliterated too? No, but they could be. Um, this is called, uh, he calls, the book is called Unholy Allegiances. Ooh. <laughs> and it's a horrible cover. And I think it's a cover we've talked about before. But it's a great book. And it's really accessible. If you're looking for like an intro book, this is a great place to start. Also, reading Revelation responsibly is like, and then Scott McKnight's book that just came out. Those three are fantastic. But I want to talk about the, the official story of Rome. I want to talk about um, reinforcing the official story of Rome and then repairing the official story of Rome. And, and then I want to draw out some, some of the big parts that this story sort of rested on that in the letters we'll see those, but also the whole book. The whole book undercuts the Roman story. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. Uh, so this is super important stuff. So I don't have any more creative way to go through it than me yapping, Tim asking and interrupting and making one-liners and then just seeing where we end. All right, so let's talk about the official story of Rome. Um, the public story of Rome begins with the fall of Troy. Um, Brad Pitt, of course, big, big deal. Um, and from the ashes of the fall of Troy emerges a hero Aeneas, I think is how you'd pronounce his name. And through him, 
are planted the seeds of a world empire. And the story mythically is told by Virgil, who was a court prophet during the reign of Augustus, who we'll talk about in a little bit. And Virgil narrates the, the promise that Zeus made to Rome, that the Romans would rule the sea and all about it. So the way the Romans conceived of the world is the Mediterranean Sea was the center of the world. And then all the nations around it formed a circle. And that Rome was destined. And by the time Virgil was writing this, I mean, it had come almost close to yeah. ruling that <clears throat> whole circle around the Mediterranean Sea. And they had a word for that that was the Orbis Terrenum, which meant the circle of the lands. And so Rome was, was destined to um, rule the known world. In other words, now they were obviously, they knew there were parts of the world that they hadn't conquered yet, but that was only a matter of time. And this was the world that counted, right? Any, any other parts of the world, they were uninteresting or they just had not yet been conquered. Um, and Zeus asserts um, um, through Virgil that the destiny is, of Rome is to bring the whole world under law's dominion. And so the, the idea that Rome was bringing, so, so not only did Rome have a God-given destiny to rule the whole world, but the gods would bestow gifts to humanity through Rome. Right. And so security, stability, and peace were some of the gifts. And I'm just going to highlight these you know, very quickly. Plutarch, um, almost a contemporary of John, said Rome developed and grew strong and attached to herself not only nations and peoples, but foreign kingdoms beyond the Mediterranean Sea. And then at last the world found stability and security when the controlling order entered into a single unwavering cycle and the world order of peace. Hmm. So it wasn't just that Rome was destined, according to its public story, to rule the world, but that, that what it brought to the world was security, stability, and peace. In fact, Rome was embodied. <laughs> the language. power. I'm just saying the power of Rome was embodied and visually portrayed in the goddess Roma. And Roma was the goddess of order, the rule of law, peace, and stability. All right, so Roma was the physical embodiment, and we'll talk about the power of symbols. Obviously, in American society, symbols function the same way. But but the the, the way Roma and, and and back in the in in those days, the the social media of the time was coinage, hmm. and so Roma is on so many of the coins minted from that era, and Roma sort of sits over the world kind of with a wreath or holding a victorious um, staff or, you know, Roma, it was just, it was, it was the idea that Roma um, herself was kind of a goddess, like the city. And, and in fact, they had an epithet that they added to Roma and that was eternal. And so Rome became the eternal city. Rome was, its destiny was unchanging and everlasting. It was, it was almost, you know, deified, the city itself, and the right. ideals of the city. Obviously, one of the things that Rome claimed it brought to the world that Revelation critiques like crazy is prosperity. And so the Romans liked to think that 
um, a golden age of prosperity had been brought to the Mediterranean Sea in that world. Um, in a speech praising Rome, um, uh, another near contemporary of John describes Rome this way. Around lie the continents far and wide, pouring an endless flow of goods to Rome. There is brought from every land and sea whatever is brought forth by the seasons and is produced by all countries, rivers, lakes, and the skills of Greeks and foreigners. Anyone who wants to behold all of these products must either journey through the whole world to see them, or you can simply come to this city. That one can see so many cargoes from India, or if you wish, Arabia, that one may surmise that the trees there and those other places have been left permanently bare and that those people must come here whenever they need anything. <laughs> In other words, the, he envisions the world stripped bare to feed the glory of Rome and the, its prosperity. Right. And one of the trenchant sort of critiques that John will levy against empire is the flow of ships into its harbor bringing the goods of the world. We'll get to that later. And obviously this was great news for the elite. Like none of the provinces or even the poor of Rome benefited. I mean, there were during different times in the Republic and the empire, bread and circuses, you know, very public and, and uh, benefactions given to the poor. But um, really who was being enriched here shockingly was the, the elite of Rome, not in any way, shape or form, the, the rest of the Mediterranean world. They boasted that they brought um, tremendous benefits to humanity. Protection from invasion, um, mm. because now if they occupied you, you weren't gonna be invaded. Uh, improvement of means of travel through Roman roads, and we still see many of those throughout what was the empire. Um, improved means of travel by sea through expansion of ports and harbors. Their dramatic reduction of pirates and piracy. Um, trade was facilitated um, and the rule of law was maintained. This was the public story. And this demonstrated not only that the destiny of Rome was, was real and true, but the favor of the gods was upon Rome, guaranteeing that that destiny was real and true. And often the emperors would give great public benefactions to provinces. Like there was um, financial assistance to rebuild several cities in Asia Minor after an earthquake in AD 17. And that, that becomes super important when the, the, the cities in Asia Minor begin to build temples in honor of the Roman emperors. Right. That's where these seven churches were located. Um, Nero dredged the harbor in Ephesus, and this was massive. Ephesus is the first of the seven churches that it's addressed and almost the most important one of those. And, um, and so it's just, I want to paint a picture that you're, you're not in Rome when you're in one of these seven cities and one of these churches, you're in a province, but the provinces have benefited from Roman rule. Um, in that, there's better travel, there's increased stability, there's um, prosperity, at least for some in your city. And that there is a great eagerness on behalf of your city's leaders to pay that back or to mm -hmm. demonstrate loyalty, something that's called pistis, which we translate faith. 
Um, and so one of the great demands of Rome was faith or loyalty. And, right. and that's why that word's used so much to describe what it was that Christians were to give to Jesus. Um, according to the great story, uh, Rome zenithed when Augustus took power in, um, in, um, in 31 BC or BCE, if you want to be proper about it. So, so there was increasingly in the Roman Republic uh, factionalism that, um, that, that levied um, different members of the Roman elite against each other and would often result in strife or in the worst circumstances, civil war. That was the great fear of Rome was civil war. Um, second only to civil war was the fear that, uh, that some, one of these factions would gain power over all the others. And so when Julius Caesar came back, brought the Roman army in you know, or near the city very famously and was assassinated, his adopted nephew, Octavian, um, took up the mantle of persecuting Julius's assassins, um, uh, with Mark Anthony. Uh, and others and went to war against them. But then once they the once that party, the Octavian party, had been vindicated against Caesar's assassins, the um, the Caesar Anthony um, partnership dissolved and they went to war. So it was about ten years of civil war um, after the death of Julius Caesar, a little more than that. Um, when when Octavian finally wins at the Battle of Actium in thirty one BC, and defeats uh, Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. Um, Octavian was heralded as the bringer of peace to the empire. He put down all of that strife. The Senate accorded him the highest honor it could give, which was the title Augustus, the illustrious one. And there were <laughs> religious connotations, some think, that were attached to that. And then all of a sudden... Um, Augustus became this bringer of peace to the world. And th there were in Asia Minor all of these salutations and prayers and offerings of incense that were now accorded Augustus. Um, and, and, and all of the, the prophecies that previous writers had, had talked about were now being pulled forward through gods like Virgil to say, this is the golden age that was promised. And so... Um, what Augustus is best known for, of course, is the Pax Romana, um, the Peace of Rome. And we have, you know, uh, we have so many records of, of instituting holidays, celebrating his birth. Um, in, in, in fact, um, the cities in Asia Minor would compete with each other about um, how best to honor Caesar Augustus. There was, the, there was a, an altar in Rome that has now been a life-size or like, yeah, life-size replica has been kind of remade. It's called the Altar of Roman Peace. And um, it sat on a major road running through uh, the city. And even an obelisk from Egypt was brought back to sort of from, from Egypt to demonstrate like we, we own the world now. And that every, and that obelisk was placed in, in kind of a cool way so that every year on, um, uh, Augustus's birthday, September 23rd, the shadow of the obelisk would point towards the altar of peace. Like it was mm -hmm. just this, there was this mythic story 
because up until Augustus, there was all this factionalism and the, the, the poets uh, and the orators of Rome would wonder, will the golden age of Rome's founding ever return? Would we live up to the promise of the gods? Um, and would the civil war and the strife ever cease? And so when Augustus came and brought peace, <coughs> celebrated through this altar of peace, they, they declared that there was an inauguration of a new age and that there were, there were five characteristics of the new age that you see all throughout Roman writings and coins and temples, inscriptions. Number one, the new age is the fulfillment of prophecy. This was, this was what Zeus and Jupiter promised. The new age includes a new order in heaven as well as a new order on earth, that Apollo, the god of the sun, was ascendant now in this age. The new age is universal and includes all the nations. The new age is enacted through the official celebrations and actions of the empire. And the new age has a savior figure, an inaugurator, yeah. um, the greatest benefactor of all times, the son of God, the victorious Augustus. And, and Augustus started calling himself the son of God when uh, during he threw some games to honor Julius. And during the course of these games, there was a comet that Julius, uh, or excuse me, that Octavian grabbed a hold of and said, that, that is a portent, uh, a portent for the fact that um, uh, Julius Caesar, once assassinated, has now ascended to the right hand of right. the gods. And therefore, I am his son. So I'm, he called himself the son of the deified one. And so there was this this massive um, just because you like the sound of it, absolutely. Was like, yeah, Wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> so this sounds good. I'm gonna take it. So so at the end of the first century, you have a public story that has found absolute vindication in the eyes of all the Romans. Right? This it was destined, and now it is here. And all of the things that were promised, Rome has finally lived up to its promise. And, and one of the things that you have to understand about the, the story Rome told about itself is that, of course, that peace that Rome had brought to the world only came through conquest. And, and um, Augustus, um, at the end of his life, wrote a massive list of his accomplishments. And one of the things he talked about was how he didn't want this, but it was by universal consent and decree that he was given all of these honors. So he paints himself as this bringer of peace, even though it was through conquest, and somebody who rule was forced upon him rather than someone who sought it out and fought for it himself. Now, the altar of peace is a massive symbol you know, next to the goddess Roma of what the new age was going to be looking like. In fact, um, there were acclamations of um, the significance of Augustus. And this is one that's very famous. It was um, written by a city in Asia Minor. Now, this is Turkey, modern day Turkey. And, um, and this was, I think, 9 BC, 9 AD, 9 BC, I think. And it was, it, there was a, um, a competition. And is this making sense, by the way? There's yeah. so much abstract. Okay. There was a competition among the cities of Asia Minor, how best to honor Augustus. And um, this was the winning selection. All right. So just notice the language here. 
this was a, a, a decree honoring Augustus's birthday as the beginning of a new year. Okay? okay, so taking New Year's Day being his birthday. And the argument is this. Because providence, with a capital P, the favor of the gods, has set all things in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she, providence, filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, exact Greek word used of Jesus, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things well. And because he, Caesar, by his appearing, his epiphany, surpassed all previous benefactors and leaves posterity no hope of another benefactor surpassing what he has done. And because the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news, literally oh, wow. euangelion, <clears throat> for the world that came through him. Yeah. All right, so literally the word savior, the word peace, the word lord, all of this. I mean, and, and the acclamation is that no one will ever give to the world what Augustus has given to the world. Yeah. That's the acclamation. And that's why he's worthy of, you know, such remembrance. Now, all of these celebrations, holidays, altars, offerings, these were all things that reinforced the public story. Right? The vast majority of the empire never saw the emperor. Right. Never saw the altar in Rome, but there were always always things there to remind them. There's always something there to remind me, 80 song, <laughs> of uh, of the goodness and the power of Rome. Yeah. So whether it was coins or whatever, but but in Asia Minor, there arose something called an imperial cult, which as, as the cities of Asia Minor sort of jockeyed with each other to show favor to the emperors because they received... Um, you know, a lot of the elite from the provinces were granted Roman citizenship and they were, their fortunes were tied to the fortunes of Rome. Totally. So very often what would happen is that the cities would jockey with each other. It's kind of like when, um, two cities are competing for a sports franchise. Right. And they're making the argument of all the good that will come into their city because of that. Well, that, that's very much what this is like. And, and it wasn't, the imperial cult wasn't forced on Asia Minor. Asia Minor wanted this as a way of showing allegiance to the empire yeah. and faith to Rome. And so um, all throughout the, the cities uh, of Asia Minor, there were temples and shrines and altars and cult images dedicated to Augustus, to the members of his household, including those who succeeded him um, and, and, hit and held kind of imperial office. Um, in the first century, uh, at the end of the first century, 35 cities in Asia Minor, all right, held the honorific title of Temple Warden, which is Neocorus, of an imperial cult site. So in other words, they were designated by the empire as a place where you could go to pay homage to the emperor. All seven cities addressed by John had cultic sites attached to them, right? Mm. Six of the cities, all but Thyatira, had imperial temples. Five had imperial altars and subsidized priesthoods. Pergamum was, the, was a center for the imperial cult in the province, and it was the first city in Asia Minor 
uh, to honor Augustus. So it 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 held a great deal of honor because it was the first Neocolros in Asia mm. Minor. It, ro- it it built a temple for Augustus and the goddess Roma in uh, 29 BC. Um, for which it won this honorific title, Neocoros, in the same year. Ephesus, not to be outdone, there's this great, there's this great competition between Ephesus and Pergamum, dedicated part of its great temple of Artemis to the emperor as well in Roma. Um, and and it, it's we'll get into it when we get into Domitian. But there was a great deal of local pressure to um, abide by the terms of the imperial cult in the cities and towns where you lived. It wasn't just these big, massive sorts of celebrations, but it was the coin that you held and used in the marketplace. It was the incense that you would have to offer um, when you would celebrate Roman holidays. It was the way in which you had to conduct business, the way in which prayers and invocations would be given when you met with your guild for a public dinner. I mean, it was just, it saturated the provinces. And the reason it saturated the provinces was because the provinces wanted to curry favor with Roman power. And um, unlike the vast majority of the world, the provinces, Asia Minor wanted Roman rule. They loved it. So so one of the things that that happened, and it's just so funny, because um, Ephesus built a temple and so they got called, uh, they were called Temple Warden or near Koros. And then um, Pergamum started calling themselves first to be near Koros. And they built another temple. And so they were called twice near Neocoros. And then, and then Ephesus built another temple, and they were called twice Neocolros. And then Pergamum responded with coins that said they were first to be twice Neocolros. I mean, it was, I know I'm butchering the word, but the idea was there was this, like, you couldn't escape how uh, unbelievably symbolic and mythic and powerful all of this imagery was. And so um, in Asia Minor, what the, the kind of persecution that we imagine wasn't the persecution of you know being fed to the lions yet at this point. That came later. Um, but it was like when you're abstaining from a public festival, and that public festival, you're told, is necessary for the favor of the gods to rest over the city. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my neighbor isn't doing that. Like That gets noticed. Yeah, there's the, the existential dread starts to come in. Yes. Great pull. Absolutely. Or, or um, if uh, the emperor, um, you know, sent a gift to the city and the city is is acknowledging that gift with public displays of faith and loyalty and allegiance and my neighbor doesn't show up at those. Like, yeah. you notice these things. And it wasn't that the Christians, as long as the Christians were viewed as a subsect of Judaism, they were safe because they were... There were allowances for Judaism in Roman law. But the minute Christianity became its own thing, they became labeled as atheists. And it wasn't Mm. that they worshiped Jesus. You could worship as many gods as you want as long as you acknowledged Rome, its power, its (laughs) sovereignty, and ultimately, in some strange way, its divinity. And so... um, they were atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman gods and goddesses, including totally. Roma. <laughs> right, which is so funny. Um, and so all that is to say, this is, by the way, 16 pages of notes. 
that we're going through. <laughs> um, all of this is to say that, like, the, what you had in um, the first century was a, a mythic story that goes like this. And this will kind of be our a little bit of our summary. I don't want to take too much more time, although I find this so dadgum fascinating. And um, I, I just think, wait, wait till you see some of the parallels. It's, it's just absolutely amazing. So um, this is from Michael Gorman, I think, um, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly. But um, Rome had a civic religion that was, it was Roman nationalism. I mean, it was like, it was, you just couldn't, you could not escape it. And it, it consisted of six pieces of theology. The first piece was the gods of chosen Rome, as we've said. Secondly, Rome and its emperor are agents of the gods rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. That's so massive. Rome, thirdly, manifests the gods' blessings. Security, peace, justice, faithfulness, fertility, among all of those who submit to Roman rule. All right? So important. Fourth, the rule of the gods through Rome was accomplished through violence, domination, and pacification that was hardly peaceful. All right? And they knew this, yeah. but that wasn't part of the propaganda. Fifth, the emperor... Now, it didn't start this way. Even Augustus was hesitant because of what happened to Julius Caesar. Even Augustus was hesitant yeah. to acclaim many honors. So when, when Pergamum said, hey, let's build a temple to Augustus, Augustus insisted that Roma be honored as well. And mm -hmm. that was just smart, right? Yep. That's just smart politics. <coughs> Cough button. All right. But the, that, that over the course, and when we get to Domitian, who I think was the emperor during the time of Revelation, we'll have a whole episode on him when we get to chapter four. Good Lord, there is so much here. But the emperor himself, this is point number five, was worthy of praise, devotion, and allegiance. He was worthy of having divine and quasi-divine titles, such as Lord, Lord of all, God, Son of God, Savior. Um. And, and in that little inscription we read yep. from Asia Minor about Augustus, he hears the good news about his birth. Right. You're like, oh my goodness. And then finally, number six, the imperial age is the long-awaited golden age. Indeed, the eschatological age in which humanity's hopes have been fulfilled and will continue forever. I mean, my goodness. And, and, and so when Paul gets a hold of a Jewish story, about Jesus being the one true king of Israel, Paul is going to tell and narrate that story in mythic terms that, yeah. that provide so a counter-narrative. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. So we're going to use all the words. Jesus yeah. brought peace. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord, right? The assembly of God's people is ecclesia, just like the assembly of Roman citizens. I mean, it's just beautiful what he does as he, as he takes the symbolic and mythic universe of Rome and subverts it. So six points, the gods have chosen Rome, Rome and its emperor are agents of the God's rule. Rome manifests the God's blessing. This peace was brought about through conquest and the threat of violence. The emperor was worthy of praise and devotion and the imperial age is the long awaited eschatological age. Mm. 
And what's fascinating is what's going to happen is that we are going to get the most brutal takedown of that Roman story. So instead of like, we'll get to this, but like instead of the goddess Roma, when you look at Roma, like in the altar of peace or on these coins, she's beautiful. But when we talk about Roma, the goddess in Revelation, she is a prostitute. And she is drunk. <laughs> she is a drunk prostitute, drunk on the wine of, of the blood of, of Christians. I mean, like, wow. oh my goodness, like the great prostitute. Instead of, instead of um, uh, Rome being the favor, representing the favor of the gods, the Rome, behind Rome sits two beasts and a dragon. Right? Who, I mean, I mean, you're just like, it, there's this takedown of the symbolic and mythic universe of the Roman Empire and the way all of those things were employed to tell its story. There is a counter story that's so beautiful, yeah. right? That, that, that the kingdom of Jesus is the real kingdom. The peace of Jesus is the real peace. Um, and the peace of Jesus is, is secured by the sacrifice of Jesus, not his conquest. Right. right. Yes. Roman victory is not through conquest. Conquest comes through weakness, humiliation, and seeming defeat. Faith and allegiance to Rome is replaced by faith and allegiance to Jesus. And instead of being an eternal city, uh, Rome turns out to be just another version of Babylon yes. to be supplanted and replaced by the new Jerusalem. And that's the eternal city, baby. I mean, and you're just like, and the whole book... All of the symbols of the book. And again, it's just beautiful. You have these images of Jesus, these images from the Old Testament, and these images from um, the Roman story that are all mixed together to tell these churches. And they're tiny. I mean, they are tiny. What, maybe 1,000 people, 2,000 people in all yeah. of Asia Minor at right. most? I mean, and maybe more since, you know, this, I think, I think Revelation was written towards um, the end of the first century. So maybe more than that, but not more than 5,000 people. Yeah, that was a question I wrote down because that's an interesting piece to look at what numbers look like. Just as you're trying to pull and think about things today and, you know, discern through all this information, because obviously there's, we don't, there's obvious, uh, parallels obvi <laughs> yes we'll just let sit there but yeah we will we'll come back to those oh believe me we'll, there is a truckload coming but before we get to the seven letters and it just and when we get to the city of ephesus right what the seven oracles to the seven churches for some of them they are embracing parts of empire that are antichrist yeah for some of them um they are resisting parts of empire that are antichrist and they're commended some of them are uncomfortable some of them are too comfortable some of them are living in contested space some of them are living in really uncontested space and um and some of them are wrestling with false teaching that that totally validates yeah the the playing into the story that rome would tell about itself totally Oh, so it's hard for us to imagine. And that's why we're going to use American parallels, because by the time you look at, uh, you know, Memorial Day and Veterans Day and President's Day and Fourth of July and flags and national anthems and Pledge of Allegiances, I mean, 
like we're just saturated for us this is just normal like to be christian and to be american that's not a well yeah totally um and well, so and a lot of that language that you just used was used for the previous that's the point yeah that is the point and so the goal of revelation its relevance to us is it invites us into remapping the symbolic universe of america into the question how are we accommodating babylon today yeah what's well, the irony is out of control because the like you're talking about how the letters are subverting the the norm the status quo of the of the empire and yeah. now we're kind of like subverting the subversion to go back to yeah the original <laughs> yeah yeah it's because what we're, what we're going to see is that babylon it, israel was babylon called babylon at one point egypt was referenced as babylon babylon was called babylon and so rome was just another incarnation of this type or this archetype of a city set against the purposes of God or a nation, an empire. And, um, and so the question isn't, is America good or bad? Because that's, that's not how you ask the question. Totally. That's not discernment. That's huge. I think Yeah, that's so big. Cause I, that's what I was just thinking with like with Israel, when they were called Babylon or call or exposed for whatever, it was always as a form of course correction. Yes. And to say, hey, we're never we're never too good to learn that we've we've been led astray or we've taken a wrong turn yep. or whatever. That's right. And that's a call back to the center. Yep. Whereas we like anytime someone challenges the sanctity of America or whatever, or even Christianity, saying, Hey, maybe we were we got off base with this, it's like, no, these are holy they're sure. impenetrable so it's so interesting because yeah. it is exactly that like this is not like being called babylon is not just being shoved into a hole that you can't come out of no. and labeled and thrown away it's saying hey guys you're a little right. bit off let's yeah. course correct back to the center yes babylon has a set of dynamics yeah and so does new jerusalem and so those are displayed throughout the book of revelation it's it's a tale literally of two cities i mean that yeah. would be a great title for a book <laughs> um, and the dynamics of the culture of death that undergirds Babylon versus the culture of life that is in display in New Jerusalem. And, and, but there's some, there's some tough things about New Jerusalem too, because the writer over and over says there are people left outside of the city and the gates are open, but they're yeah. outside of the city. Yeah. And there are two vice lists at the end of Revelation that are about that narrate, but the, but but those vice lists turn out to be the sins of Babylon. Yeah, and um, and so it's just it's 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 mind blowingly brilliant, and I feel the need. Forgive me, but I feel the need to justify all of the background, and it's precisely because we don't we don't feel like we need any. I can just I'm an American. My Bible's in English. And doggone it, my preacher told me that anyone can open it up and, and learn it. And so I'm just going to open this thing up and learn it. And um, and there are parts of that that's true, and there are parts of that story that are not true. And um, we we get off on such a wrong foot if we think the whole thing was written well, the, about us to just us. Just the mythic language stuff alone, not just in Revelation, but 
every time a writer in the Bible is using known mythic language or known storytelling, you know, that's so important to understanding how to read anything. So we're kind of like a cereal box with a decoder ring for approaching this book. All right. I wrote down one little short question that I, I don't know that you'll be able to answer, but I think it's interesting in framing some of the stuff that you talked about. Um, and that is with the, uh, with the other gods. So, mm. um, the gods of Rome that they're referencing, whether it's Zeus and Jupiter or whether it's Roma or whoever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so it's, again, it's that little thing that there's other players on the field whispering mm. in ears. And so I think mm. it's interesting whether or not Zeus, and, I'm, and I know we can't answer this question, but whether or not Zeus is an Elohim, not the Elohim, mm. but is maybe a character that is there. Because what I think is so fascinating is that the gods, all the other gods that are not Yahweh, mm. all whisper in ears that are promoting power over again. So mm-hmm. you start to see that theme and then you start to see the counter narrative of of the gospel, the counter narrative of heaven, the kingdom of God coming in and subverting all that stuff. While all of these things are still whispering in ears, this is, even if it's labeled through prosperity, right? Mm -hmm. Like hoarding all that stuff that, so all these underprivileged areas have to come to Rome to experience their Mm -hmm. own cultures. You know, that's wild, but it makes sense from a really entitled self-preservation point of view and and a power over point of view. So it's, I just think it's interesting that there are these other spiritual entities on the on the mm. field that are whispering in the ears, or did we just make it all up? Do they say, hey, we need a reason to justify Rome being the biggest kid on the block? Mm. Well, it's because God, Zeus, told us that mm. we are the greatest, and we sure. must remain the greatest. Or is there an entity that speaks to them and promotes that? Like, Yeah. I don't know. I think it's really fascinating because while you were going through all that, I was like, oh, all these gods are advocating completely opposite of Yahweh mm-hmm. and Jesus. They may use right. some of the same language, but yeah. it's always in a way of like sub- like subjugating other people so that you can be on top of the pile. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always. interesting. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And so, so when we get to the dynamics of Babylon versus the dynamics of New Jerusalem, there's so much immediate application. And this is why Revelation is relevant, not because it's written to us to forecast the future, but it's written to a church that's called to discern where it is partnered with Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. And so where where do we part where do I? Like when when I don't have and I don't I don't even care. I know I'm supposed to care, but I don't care where my iPhone is made. Right? <laughs> no idea. All I know is like, oh, we had some supply line. We had a supply shortage. And that was like big news. And there were ships stacked in our harbors. And like, oh, my goodness, I couldn't get things from Amazon or whatever. Like, we're the harbor all the ships are going to. You know, you know what I mean? And we're not the only one. But like, when, when you realize that the, the book is written by marginalized people, for marginalized people, and we're kind of reading it as, you know, the 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 folks that are like, well, didn't we bring 
didn't we bring peace to the world? I mean, yeah. I mean, right? I mean, didn't we bring the rule of law and the constitution and democracy? Isn't that our gift to the world? And haven't we brought democracy through violence? I mean, right? Like you just start going, oh yeah. crap. Maybe, maybe there's some things that for us to learn. And empire is gonna empire, right? The, the politics is gonna politic. Is that the title of the episode? Empire is gonna empire. Oh, I like that. Yes. Um, the the issue is issue is if the church is supposed to provide a counter narrative, then there are parts of empire. If we're going to be in empire, that we we can embrace and receive as good, and there are parts we must resist and provide a narrative to. And, and, and again, that that's, discernment. Yes, because um, it, it's not only the discernment of what to receive or reject or redeem, but it's then how you go about it. Yeah. So we might agree potentially with um, uh, so, some folks who have issues with some of the um, ideology that undergirds gender these days, and and let's say, yep, yep, I kind of think male and female, you know, are categories and are important, and I don't know how it all works, but I'm like, I'm suspicious of just all of a sudden throwing all of that to the wind. I imagine there there are, a, there are more than a few Christians out there who feel that way, but who wonder then, so what? Is the answer just protesting and canceling and um, howling at, at the at the world? Is it is it not seeking the flourishing of of uh, kids and teens that are transitioning? Is it picketing hospitals like? It's not just that we would agree or disagree over what parts of the cultural stream represent Jesus well or not, right, but how. it was. It's then what do we do in response? Um, and so much of I think what I've been wrestling with is let's say that there are parts because there are parts of the world where I go, nope, I, I don't. I think I see that as anti-Jesus. Um, but how how do I respond to those parts still in a Jesus way? Versus, I'm going to be anti-Jesus against the anti-Jesus things, and and which just means we're participating further in the dynamics of Babylon, and there's nothing new or significant about us. You know what I well, mean? Well, yeah. How do you frame that through, like the the New Jerusalem and the gates being open? Well, well, bro. There's do you a stand lot of at debate. the windows and point out at the people outside and throw things at them, <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like I, it's, when you try to look at it through all the different from a bird's eye view of all the different categories that we talk about and stuff. It's, it becomes yeah. interesting because the gates being open, you know, there's an obvious metaphor to what that looks like. The gates are not shut and locked. Yeah. So there's an obvious message that's in there. So how do you, how do you live in that and parlay that? Are you worried yeah. about losing your place in the, New Jerusalem? Right. Are you worried that, right. you know, what is it? Yep. 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 So it's not just sitting and standing and saying, hey, we have to reject this. I think there's a, like, I think there's a load that we have to reject. But how we reject or how we resist is more important um, than what it is. Yeah. And um, although it's so interesting because Jesus is going to use some pretty, excuse me, pretty harsh language. Um, about it's in, in some of the churches about some of the false teaching they're they're putting up with. So we have to wrestle with that part too. Yeah. 
Um, and it's not just the other people's false teaching that I have to question. It's okay. Right. What, what have I, what, what have I bought into? And that, and that is why this is so hard. And so like little tried, <laughs> I yeah. mean, we just, it, it, it's no fun sitting around going daggone it, daggum it, um, or doggone it. Those are, I confuse those. <laughs> Whatever Every, version you're looking for. I don't know why. But I am mixing my words up more and more, and it could be age. It could be, I don't know, it could be something having to do with the cough. Well, um, maybe it's whatever our mutual friend sent this morning. We need to try that. The vaping? Zap, bro- no, zapping, zapping the brain for memory. Oh, good Lord. It's not memory that I have a problem with. It's that there are two words of equal value, and I decide to combine them. I forget words. I'll get stuck on one word for a while trying to figure out what it is. Yeah, I think there's a there's a that's a symptom of something I have no doubt. Yeah. I could never I could never be a medical student. I would be <laughs> self fulfilling so many. Do symptoms. you remember the SNL skit that they would have Alec Baldwin on? This was year in the mid '90s or so, and he was the doctor that mispronounced everything. Oh no! So it was very dramatic. He's like, he's got the big C, canker, but nobody would ever correct him when he. Oh, was- that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's funny. No, Tim, I I. You have a great memory for... For crap like that. <laughs> well, I mean, you are an encyclopedia. And I think our our community really appreciates the number of obscure movie references and quotes you lay down that I don't, I don't even... I'm not do. even... <laughs> I'm not even picking up. I think there are a few out there like you who are like... Yeah, there's like, a few. There's like three people that are like, hey, I understand that reference. Totally. Because, I mean, you could have, and you do... Entire conversations consisting of movie references that go right over my head, and then and then you always are asked like, "Hey, have you seen this?" I'm like, "No, I I don't, I don't, man." So I don't have that kind of intelligence. I'm sorry, Tim. Uh, I think that's you showing good discernment. Uh, I don't know. There are parts of Babylon that are great, and and maybe it's true. Maybe... We rewatched uh, the Spider Verse movie last night because we have tickets to see the new one on Sunday. Oh. And Is that the first one? one's so good. I, I've tried, man. I just can't do it. I'm just really? not a cartoon guy. I'm oh, not a cartoon man. guy. It is so good. I'm sorry. I'm sure. I mean, everyone and everyone I love and respect who loves comic book movies say it's great. Yeah, it's like top but of I've the pile. Tr- I've tried it. And unless you give me Chris Helmsworth, I'm not interested. <laughs> or Chris Evans or Chris Pratt. Just give me a Chris. Which? Which? Let me ask you this. Which Chris would you want to switch careers with? Wow. Yeah. Probably Hemsworth. He's he gets paid to stay in shape like that. Yeah. And yeah. has found all these like exercise programs, but now he's doing all those like wilderness adventure shows I, yeah. too. Is he? Okay. Yeah, like like National Geographic kind of things. Like they'd go take him to these cool locations like okay <laughs> yeah when you want to pay me to go run around in these beautiful locales all over the planet and just appreciate them and i, I like that. that that's that's pretty solid that's a great that's a great answer my second would be chris pine i think uh <laughs> i'd love to be captaining the starship enterprise i think that oh. would be would be really fun and he's very handsome he is very and, handsome and, he's and one he of the spider-man be, voices in the and movie. he will of course of course he is and he will be handsome for a long time like he's going to be like one of those robert redford sort of handsome or mm-hmm. um dances with wolves guy kevin costner yeah he's handsome 
Then there's right. Paul Newman. I, sometimes I forget that we're still recording. <laughs> like that You're whole. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's literally. Uh, that's so funny because I looked up and I'm like, oh, we're still recording. Oh, that's that's. If you ever wonder, there it <laughs> this is. is. All what right, we do when we press stop. <laughs> oh, good lord. God bless us, everyone. Bye. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.